You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. I look back at the mini disc format and what it's like to live with a BlackBerry today. Tech fan number 276. It's your host David Cohen here, running a solo show this week. Um, unfortunately, Tim and I were not able to get together over the weekend. I'm recording this on a Tuesday night. Uh, Tim's got some real life issues that he's dealing with at the moment, and uh, I'm not going to talk about those anymore. Uh, he will discuss those with you as much as or as little as he wants when he retur- is able to return. Uh, but in the meantime, you've got me. I didn't want to miss doing a show this week. Um, but I wasn't able to get myself organised to do a solo show over the weekend, so I'm travelling away for work, and uh, I'm sat in a hotel room, and I'm talking to you. Um, first of all, I'm trying my best to do audio quality here. If you hear any odd noises from the desk that I'm working on here, like my hands or anything moving, it's because I'm, I currently have my hands sat very close to my portable microphone, uh, the reason for that is that if I move them away from the microphone, this weird constant ticking noise comes in. I, I think it might be coming from something around me, like the um, desk lamp or the uh, fridge under the desk in the hotel. Um, all I know is when my hands are near the microphone, it disappears. So I figure that it's better to have my hands near the microphone and try and keep them still and maybe occasionally pick up the odd noise rather than having a constant background ticking noise that was, um, got to be honest, kind of annoying so um, if that does come through or my hand noise comes through I apologize in advance I know that my audio quality has not been fabulous in the past um, I just don't carry enough of the right equipment unfortunately to uh, to do this as well as Tim does when he does it he's really got it got it down pat because he's been doing it for a, a very long time so apologies for that but hopefully we'll be okay so my topics this week um, I'm very conscious that a lot of times on TechFan, we talk about stuff that's going on in the news and kind of react to what's going on around us in the tech world. And also we talk a lot about Apple stuff because, um, you know, perfectly honest with you, Tim owns a site called MyMac.com. I used to write for MyMac.com and I've been the host of the MyMac.com podcast in the pack in the past. So obviously um, Tim and I are both pretty keen Apple fans. Um, however, you know, the reason we do this show is because we, we're interested in more things than just Apple stuff. It's not an Apple show. Um, and I really wanted to try and break the pace this week, particularly as there's new Apple launches being announced in the next week or so. So I wanted to try and break the pace and talk about something a little bit different. Um, I'm musing on what possibly I could talk about. Uh, I started thinking about the work I've been doing recently. I mentioned a couple of shows ago that I'd rebuilt an iPod mini and put a flash drive in it and turned it into a 128 gig iPod. Um, and while I was doing that, and I've kind of really been re- just rediscovering the joy of having my music on a standalone device, I started thinking about what I did before I had the iPod. And what I had was the mini disc. Um, and I thought it was worth maybe having a bit of a retrospective on the mini disc because I think... The mini disc 
exemplifies some of the best and the worst of the tech industry, um, particularly some of the foibles of Sony, its uh, manufacturer, licensor and uh, principal proponent. So um, for anyone who's not familiar with the details of Minidisc, uh, Minidisc came out in the 90s, late 90s, um, and really what it was was an attempt to turn a compact disc into a more portable format. We all, um, back in the day, before the MP3 player came along, we all tried to do the portable thing with CDs. But, you know, a CD was never really designed to do that. It was... The discs were big and bulky. The players were big and bulky. They had terrible battery life because the motors in the CD weren't really designed to be used while it was moving and certainly while it was on its side or, or vertical. And um, also as well, you know, the, the discs were fragile. So you had bulk, you had poor battery life, and you had fragility. Um, and also if you wanted to carry a lot of music with you, you run the, the risk of losing or perhaps having stolen, you know, a pretty expensive collection. CDs were expensive back in the day. You know, 10 CDs, that was over $100 worth of stuff. So um, CD didn't really cut it as a portable medium. I know a lot of people did it, but um, it wasn't really very good. So Sony came along and they tried to reinvent the CD for um, portability. Um, they really wanted to grab some of the ground they lost the CD with the Walkman, um, which originally was a, a was a tape system. So they designed from the ground up a new format called Minidisc. And from an engineering point of view, I think Minidisc was a real work of art. It really was a, a great engineering solution. They started with the discs which were much, much smaller than a CD. They were probably about um, a third of the size of a CD. They uh, were stored in a caddy, so they were protected from the environment. Kind of like, um, um, it, it, it was a little bit like a three and a half inch floppy disk uh, caddy uh, with a sliding door on it, so you could the player could access the drive surface. The disk inside looked like a CD, but in fact it was a magnetic magneto optical CD, which meant that um, using a, a magnetic field on it would allow a laser to uh, change the um, the bits on the drive and so actually write to it, so it was writable. Uh, a, an original CD, uh, original Minidisc, sorry, had the same length of a CD of 74 minutes. Um, the way it achieved that on a much smaller disc was to um, effectively use a new compression system. Um, Sony designed a new compression system from scratch. It was called A-Track. It was a predecessor of the um, AAC format that Apple um, is known for using. It was a similar approach, and um, A-Track really, again, was a great piece of work in that you got much smaller data rates than um, even you got with MP3 while retaining uh, what sounded like perfect CD quality. Um, and it only it was improved over time, and it only got better and better. Um, the discs themselves went into a players or recorders um, the players' recorders obviously were designed to be portable, so they were small, really small. Most of them were not much bigger than a mini disc themselves, thicker obviously, but uh, not much bigger in footprint. Certainly later on, the, the early ones had kind of a little bit of bigger size, but the later ones got very, very small indeed. Um, and you had a lot of additional features, even over CDs. You could name tracks, you could... Um, actually put a text field into the uh, into the disc for a, for a particular tracks. You could name a disc themselves and that would appear up in the scrolling LTD display on the um, on the mini disc on the mini disc player. Um, 
you could uh, you could do a little bit of simple editing on the on the MIDI disc as well. So if you were recording, you could kind of chop chop and change tracks, split tracks in the middle and everything. Basically, what you're doing there is you were editing the play table that was at the beginning of the disc. So um, it's a little bit like, kind of like how a modern computer um, floppy disk was was formatted. There was a table at the front that told the player where all the tracks were, and by editing that, you could allow it to jump around the disk in a way that you wanted. Um, much better battery life than CD. Um, so, uh, an audio quality was excellent. I mean, it was really, really excellent, uh, and it was small enough that you could carry quite a few mini discs with you uh, and your player and um, listen to a lot of music on the go in the days before mp3 came along and you had your whole music collection with you. Um, you can probably tell I was a big fan and I had several uh, player recorders over the years. Um, my first one was a cheap, cheapish, I think it was from Sanyo. I remember that, oh no, no maybe it was a Sharp. Anyway, it was a lot of Japanese companies that really embraced Minidisc. Sony licensed the um, technology and many of the Japanese companies jumped in. So there were lots of different players on the market, very vibrant. Uh, and really, you know, Minidisc, it lasted for about 20 years. Um, they only stopped making them about five years ago. So, um, yeah, I had a, I think I had the Sharp player. Uh, and it got stolen from my car. I think I seem to remember my, my car went in for some uh, accident damage work and I'd left it in the glove box. When I got the car back, it was gone. Uh, and with the insurance money, I bought a proper Sony Minidisc recorder and this, I tell you, this was... I'll stick a picture of it in the show notes. I'll use it as the um, as the image for this episode. It was a beautiful machine. It was tiny, absolutely tiny. It was it was built... It felt like when you were using it, it was all made of, um, of metal. And when you were using it, it felt like a piece of Swiss watch machinery. It was absolutely gorgeous. Brilliant battery life from a little battery the size of a stick of gum. Um, and it really was not much bigger than the mini disc itself. I absolutely loved that machine, and I did a lot of travelling with it. Um, I travelled for business to Brazil for around about two thousand, I think it was. Um, and uh, yeah, I was in Brazil for eight, ten weeks on business, and I had that player and a collection of mini discs I'd recorded myself um, with me and. Uh, kept me through the business trip, kept me well entertained, uh, and it was pretty, pretty cool. But of course, it wasn't long before the uh, iPod came along, and that really did change the game and sounded the death knell for Minidisc. Um, it wasn't just competition from the iPod, though, because you know the mini Minidisc had some advantages. It was really heavily used in uh, originally in professional journalistic recordings and music recordings. It was very easy to plug a mini-disc recorder into a uh, concert deck and get a pretty good bootleg recording of a concert. Um, and lots of bands did that, and you could you could pick those up off the internet and what have you. Um, journalists used them as well because you could get some professional recorders that would take um, you know proper professional outdoor mics and you could do field recording very easily with them. Um, Minidisc was designed to be robust, so unlike CDs, which skipped a lot because they just weren't designed to be used when you were travelling, Minidisc was designed uh, right from the get-go to be used portably, so there was plenty of, of uh, buffer space in the player recorders to make sure that um, if it got moved while it was, um, while it was doing something, it wouldn't, it wouldn't drop data either playing or recording, and as well, you know, because it was smaller and it was designed for the ground up to be uh, used portably, um, it was just all, the whole system was a lot more robust to being 
moved while it was uh, while it was doing its thing. So yeah, journalists were big fans, and uh, for quite a long time, um, the uh, the jingles and the commercials that you would hear on commercial radio uh, were all coming off mini disc decks. They they basically replaced the old cartridges they used to use for that with mini disc decks and uh, plugged mini discs in and out to to do that. And in fact, I I did something similar myself. Um, just at, it must have been about ninety nine something like that. I was in a play. Um, and we needed to do some sound effects, kind of um, between scene changes. There was uh, the the play was meant to have um, answering machine messages played back to the audience to kind of up, bring them up to date on things to do with the plot. Um, and we recorded all of those on my mini disc recorder, me, me and the cast. And um, then I basically assembled them together on a, on a computer editing suite, and then recorded them back to mini disc so that they could be easily played track by track by the um, lighting engineer during the uh, production of the uh, of the play. Um, and that was much simpler and easier to set up than it would have been to actually put a computer in there and have him play the tracks as, uh, as audio files. So, and it was really robust as well, you know. And that's one of the things that I find, even today, I kind of miss from doing that. Rather, I mean, I'm recording to you now on my iPad, but you know what, I have... The iPad has to be plugged into power to power the microphone, um, and it's running. The recording is running in software. It could crash. It could stop. Um, it could go wrong. You, we could get weird audio artifacts that are to do with something that's gone wrong in the software. With a hardware recording solution, you don't get any of that. You know, you've got an analog microphone going into the the machine, and the machine has one job, and that's all it ever does, which is to record audio. And so it's much more reliable. And there is something to be said for that. Of course, you don't get the convenience of having that data in um, in a computer format that can be easily edited. Uh, and that was one of the downfalls of Minidisc, because it really launched it launched in the, in the 90, mid-90s, but uh, by the end of the 90s, it was becoming clear that people wanted to do things with their music on computers, and Sony really, really resisted that. Partly, I think, because they were a company that was... That, that had interests in the music industry and the and the movie industry. They had um, a music arm. You'd think that music arm would mean that we'd support mini discs with um, pre-recorded content uh, strongly. They didn't really. There were pre-recorded mini discs you could buy, but they weren't well stocked. And because they didn't sell well, people stopped stocking them and they stopped making them. So that died to death pretty quickly, um, even in the early days of mini disc. So that left recording your own stuff. And really, because of digital piracy concerns, Sony made it pretty much as hard as possible, given what the format was doing. So uh, the original generations of Minidisc, there was no digital recording at all. You could have a digital feed going into the player. Uh, many of them had uh, kind of optical jacks that would take a, a fibre connection from your hi-fi. But the recording itself would be in analogue in real time in that you, would, um, you wouldn't be able to transfer a file digitally from to or from a mini-disc. So if you recorded something, you had to record it in real time. Uh, and so if you wanted to copy a CD to your mini-disc, you basically played the CD um, and recorded at the same time. And the mini-disc recorders were normally intelligent enough to spot the gaps between tracks and also massively put a gap on the mini-disc so you got separate tracks. But um, that was as far as it goes. And if you had an album that lasted for an hour, then you would be recording it for an hour. 
similarly, if you went out and recorded something on your mini disc, uh, whether it be a bootleg concert or somebody talking, like an interview or um, a piece of music, or you were jamming yourself on your guitar or something like that, to get that off the mini disc into um, something else was another analog transfer. You had to connect to the mini disc and play the thing out, and so. Not really very time efficient if you wanted to get that into a computer suite for digital editing. Um, so yeah, that was that. A few years later, Sony really, I mean, they started trying to respond to what was going on with uh, MP3 players. This was pre-iPod, but it was after things like the Diamond Rio and the Creative MP3 players started to hit the market. And they updated the format with something called NetMD. And NetMD really was, you know, this is how... Sony demonstrated they were being dragged kicking and screaming to the digital format party. So NetMD allowed you to digitally add tracks to your mini disc. So you could take a CD and you could rip it and put it onto your mini disc. But um, it was oh, it was a convoluted process. Basically, you had to, to get a piece of software from them called CD Burner that would scan the CD and import it into Sony software. Then you used another piece of software called, I think it was called Magic Stage or something like that, or Sound Station. Anyway, it was this horribly interfaced piece of Sony rubbish. That, and that's jo the job of that software was to um, convert the songs into a track and then pipe them through a USB connection to your NetMD mini disc recorder. It was really really slow um I, i'm trying to remember i can't remember if this was pre-usb2 maybe it was that could have been part of the problem but the software itself was slow um the whole thing took ages uh it had a way of titling the tracks so that you could put the title you know i mentioned that mini disc had those titles on the original players you had to do that on the play on the recorder so you had to actually do it kind of like um you know um like text message format virtually but there was no keyboard so you were actually doing scrolling through the whole alphabet a to z one to nine um so it was a pretty painful process so most people didn't really bother um i seem to remember that netmd allowed you to do that on the computer but again it was really kind of clunky and sometimes it didn't work right and so you'd send the stuff down and the tracks wouldn't, the track titles wouldn't come over um so that was sending stuff to the mini disc but it, what it wouldn't let you do is pull anything back so again, if you were recording something live, um, recording something for yourself, and you wanted to get that out of the uh, mini disc onto an editing suite, then you were back to an analog real-time transfer, um, which wasn't great, obviously. And, and that really harmed the format, particularly when you could record on a digital recorder and then pull those files straight over to a computer and edit them straight away. So Sony were already uh, additionally behind the curve. They finally got with the program and actually something allowed something that let you transfer two ways with a new format again called HiMD. They also uh, allowed more data to go onto the mini disk by doing some changes and having a new format uh, disk as well. Um, but by that time, it, I mean, it really wasn't live support. And even then, it wasn't a drag and drop process. You had to use those clunky bits of software to do it, um, which made the whole process painful compared to, um, this is 2004, so by this time the iPod is on the scene uh, and um, 
we're not far away from the iPhone uh, and the word digital recorder is available and you could just drag and drop tracks on and off them and um, obviously at that time minidisc looked very very old-fashioned as well as you know at that time it was competing with things that basically were one device and and nothing carrying the data uh, effectively it was all carried inside uh, versus a, a system that still had physical discs that were by that point were start even compared to and um, you know compared to an mp3 player when they were looking bulky awkward all of that sort of thing um, and so uh, they soldiered on for around about 10 12 years more after that but really um, by that point it was just fans only and um, minidisc died and um, that, that was that and it, it's sad to me because it really actually was a great format and it never realized its potential um, and I think some of the limitations that Sony put on it were were some of the reasons why but it, it was really good and as an en- as I said an engineering solution um, it really is quite admirable and uh, if you're interested in playing around with it today well you can still pick these things up there's they made millions of them, so there's plenty of them on eBay if you want to grab hold of a, a player and, or a recorder and a couple of discs and kind of play play around with it if you have a, a project that would require it. I've got to admit, I've got... Um, a couple of years ago, I bought um, a small mixer and a mini-disc recorder, thinking that maybe I could use it as a portable, um, portable podcast setup. And as I said before, it does have that, that advantage that it... It just works because it is does it just does what it's designed to do. So if you plug a microphone into a mini disc recorder and then just hit record, you're off to the races. Um, it's just editing that file afterwards that's going to slow your workflow down a bit. But I, I do have one, um, and um, I must get around to getting it out and having a play with it again because I just love it. I really, really do. And uh, sometimes with old tech, that's kind of what it's all about. You kind of put up with the limitations because you just appreciate it for what it is and what it does and how well it works. Um, I had a look through eBay tonight before I recorded this. It's amazing, actually. Um, some of those recorders are really holding their value, particularly that last generation, the high MD ones that allowed you to go both ways. Um, they, they go for a lot of money. Um, they seem to be selling for... Certainly, I saw prices uh, £100 and up, so that would be um, $120, $150 and up for those last generation of players um, and recorders that, that have that, that, that um, capability of, of going on and off. And I would imagine there's a lot of professional people in the music industry and everything who are still using those who appreciate the uh, robustness of those solutions um, for doing what they want to do. Uh, and as I say, by the end of it, A-Track was... It was always good, but by the end of it, it was sounding amazing. Um, and um, it wouldn't surprise me if some music professionals think that it sounds better than MP3 format. So that was mini disc, um, something that I really loved and something that really was important in my life for my music before the iPod came along. Um, oh yeah, I'll be honest. When the iPod came along and I, I first got one, I, I dropped my mini disc pretty quickly because it was clear that um, that digital media was the future for me uh, still using that today but still um, a forgotten classic I feel the mini disc so have you ever used one ever felt like using one get in touch and let us know uh, you can reach us at the the show at techfanpodcast.com or you can find us on twitter which is at techfanpodcast or you can go, go and find us on facebook I believe we 
do something on there. That's not that's Tim's department, not mine. But uh, we are on Facebook as well, if you are so interested. So I'm going to take a break, have a swig of coffee, and uh, turn off that um, device that's pinging email in the background. You've probably heard. But I'll be talking about that device after the break. So I'll be back with you in a moment. Me again, tech fan listeners, told you I was a rank amateur at this. I forgot to say something very important in the show. And that is to thank our sponsor, MacSales.com, OWC Computing. Um, these guys, I tell you, if you need any accessories for your Mac or for, you know, not just for Macs, actually, for any computer, go to MacSales.com. These guys know what they're doing. They've got a massive range, great prices. Um, go there now, and they currently have a Halloween sale on, so they have a whole pile of stuff that's available at discount, including used Macs. Um, we talked about those on the show before, What, how we think those are great value. Um, but a whole load of other accessories, knickknacks, anything you need for your um, Mac or PC life, to be honest. They've probably got it there. Storage, uh, high-speed SSDs, high-speed flash drives, um, all sorts of enclosures, accessories, and tools you need to upgrade your mac or your pc um, they've got it all so go check them out maxsales.com and we thank them very much for sponsoring TechFan. this is mark chapel of the essential mac and the rampant mumblings podcast and this is carl madden of the mac and forth show podcast you know what carl no nope, never met him but it's funny how many people ask no 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 i mean you know what we should do get better riders well that goes without saying no i think we should merge excuse me rampant mumblings essential mac mac and forth should merge sounds messy no 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 it'll be good we can still have all the incisive news views and opinions of rampant mumblings and essential mac along with well whatever mac and forth has to offer hmm. and what should we call this new monster uh i mean venture well it's still essentially an apple related show so why not How'd you like those apples? Catchy, but does it essentially sum up what an Apple show should be about? All right, how about get your apples here, an apple a day, chatty apple, happy pie, oh, oh, just apple. No, we essentially need something that is more apple related. Monkey tennis. Huh? No, no, no. We just need something essentially apple that lets people know we will essentially be discussing apple related things. You knuckleheads. Just call your new podcast the Essential Apple Podcast for when people have essentially run out of good podcasts to listen to. Should have gone with monkey tennis. Hey there, guys. I'm back. Um, What was that device that you could hear pinging email in the background before I uh, went for the break? It wasn't an iPhone because we all know that iPhone notifications don't sound like that. I'm conducting... A little bit of a throwback experiment this week. Um, as I said before at the beginning of the show, I'm aware that sometimes we talk too much about our iPhones or our Apple devices, and I want to try and get away from that. So um, I've got a little project I'm doing at the moment, which is I'm taking alternative phones uh, and I'm trying to live with them for a week or two and see how I like them and see what that experience is like compared to uh, my normal experience of my iPhone 7. So um, I'm doing it this week. Uh, I have to put up with some limitations, obviously, through uh, this experiment. For instance, I'm not wearing my Apple Watch this week. I'm wearing a conventional watch because, hey, my Apple Watch doesn't work with anything except my iPhone, and I'm not going to carry two phones around with me for this. I really want to live and breathe these phones, so I don't want to have my iPhone with me. And I want to accept those limitations as much as they are. So this week I am rocking a BlackBerry Passport. So the Passport was released in 2014, I think. 
and at the time it was BlackBerry's flagship phone. It runs um, BlackBerry 10, which is their most recent operating system, and the one that they designed to try and save them and catch them up from the uh, falling behind they'd done after the launch of the iPhone and uh, then the, obviously the Android competitors. Um, and the Passport was their flagship phone. It was designed to be their top-end business phone running BlackBerry 10, um, and it really was hoped that it would save the company. Alas, it did not. Unfortunately, uh, it was announced a couple of weeks ago that BlackBerry were withdrawing from the hardware market. Their last phone was the Priv, and the Priv was an Android phone running BlackBerry software. Um, and by that, I'm not talking about it running and, uh, BlackBerry 10. It was actually running pure Android, just with some BlackBerry apps on it, um, particularly the BlackBerry Messenger, which is their kind of core bread and butter app nowadays. It's a secure messaging platform, similar to iMessage, but restricted just to BlackBerry users. Um, so this really, apart from, I think the phone they did after this was the BlackBerry Classic, which was meant to be like the old keyboard BlackBerrys, but running BlackBerry 10. Um, that obviously also wasn't a success for them either, hence them leaving the hardware market. Um, so what's the Passport like? Well, from a physical point of view, it's a little bit different. It's called the Passport because it is kind of the size and shape of a Passport. It has a square four and a half inch screen uh, and underneath that screen is a row of three keys forming up the alphanumeric keyboard, uh, a QWERTY keyboard. Um, the screen is touch sensitive and funnily enough on this one the keyboard is also touch sensitive which means you can swipe over the keyboard to uh, scroll up and down, move left and right, um, kind of move your cursor around inside the messages and text and that sort of thing. And also you can do gestures like flick up from the keyboard if it's just something to replace your typing. You can just flick up underneath it and it goes straight in. It's a pretty neat system actually. The phone is extremely well built. The screen is gorgeous. Uh, it's four and a half inches, very high resolution. Um, and it's, uh, to my eyes, bearing in mind this is a phone from 2014, uh, it looks pretty much as good as anything that Apple makes or has made for the last few years. It's definitely well up in the retina class um, and it's bright and clear and sharp really like it. The whole phone actually feels like a pre, uh, premium device, pretty well built. Um, it, there is a little bit of plastic on the back. Um, there's a plastic strip at the top you can take off to, so, so to show you've got somewhere to where to put in your SIM and your uh, memory card for uh, storage upgrades. Um, the one I have is 32 gig in internal memory, but as I say, you can put a memory card in there so you can add, add extra to it. And uh, the BlackBerry 10 OS is very good about it's not precious like uh, Android is about where it puts certain applications or data. It's quite happy to use whatever memory is available. So it's very good about putting stuff on the storage. So if you get one of these and you want a 128 or 256 gig phone, that's very easy to do by just putting the, um, the right memory card in the slot. Uh, what else about it? Uh, battery life is excellent. I get two days out of it. Um, that's with a nice bright screen. The keyboard's backlit as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the keyboard. As I said, it's got three rows of keys to give you a quarter keyboard, but no numbers and no symbols and not even a shift key. Um, and the way it copes with that is basically as you're typing, it presents in a fairly intelligent manner, actually, um, punctuation and stuff on the bottom row of the screen. 
uh, and then you can get to the numbers there if you need to. And it's fairly intelligent about figuring out when you need numbers and then presenting with them to you in a strip. Or you can always press a button at any time and bring up uh, a keypad, numeric keypad. So um, it sounds a bit clunky having physical keys and then hard and then some soft keys on the screen. It actually works pretty well because that screen is square. That means you can take off, um, a, you know, half an inch at the bottom of the screen and still not affect what you're doing, and you're not not. And doesn't mean you're blocking what you can see on the screen. Um, so that's all good. The as you'd expect from BlackBerry, the business software on there, the messaging software and everything is excellent. They have this concept in BlackBerry 10 called the Hub, which basically means any messaging or notifications um, that come to the device are all in one place. You can either see them all aggregated together or you can drill down into your mail or your Twitter account or your LinkedIn account or whatever fits into the hub and most things do. So if you want to see just your text messages, your BlackBerry messages or something like that, you can go straight to those. Otherwise you can see them all in one great big long list and it's really clear. They're really easy and intuitive to use. Um, there's a whole load of keyboard shortcuts built into BlackBerry 10. So you can use that physical keyboard to you know, press C for compose, press the delete key to delete and so on, and it responds accordingly. Makes for a very slick and uh, intuitive way of handling your messaging. The calendar app is also as good as anything I've ever used on any phone. Um, it, it's funny actually, because the first time I used it, I thought, wow, this is the sort of thing that if it was available on the iPhone as an extra, as, as a separate app rather than the built-in one, I would use it in a heartbeat. Um, that is really that good. Um, funnily enough, lots of my colleagues, we, we run iPhones at work, lots of my colleagues have been complaining since we upgraded to iOS 10 that they don't like how the mail app has been changed in iOS 10 and they don't, don't use it very much. Uh, and they're all starting to move away to separate mail clients in iOS. So these things are important in a business context. And... Um, you know, most people are messaging on their phones all their time, all the time. So the ability to have a really good, strong messaging solution on your phone is, is in my view, pretty important. And I think it's one of the reasons why uh, perhaps BlackBerry have missed a trick in their marketing by not talking about how good these phones are for that sort of thing to the average consumer versus the business user. So, you know, the phone itself is nice, nice premium feel to it, good battery life, good performance really good performance actually it's fast um, great screen what's not to like well what's not to like unfortunately is the rest of the software experience now I'm going to cut BlackBerry a little bit of slack here in that you know this is a this is a system that's now being de-supported so obviously you can't necessarily expect it to have been kept completely up to date but I have to say despite their best efforts the software support is where it really falls down unfortunately so they have their own app store called BlackBerry World. Um, and unfortunately, because of the moribund nature of the BlackBerry business, it's a, a difficult pace, place to find and buy software, unfortunately. Um, there are a lot of apps on there. A lot of them were built by kind of hobbyists and single programmers, and it kind of shows. They're not as slick as they should be. Um, they don't really have all the features that you would expect from competing apps on other platforms. Um, and that's a shame because, you know, it is obviously the guys who've built this software have put a lot of hard work into it. But you can tell from the lack of polish and the um, lack of updates and that sort of thing that these aren't um, always big professional software houses, but they're kind of one man bands. And of course, you know, that kind of detracts from the whole sort of store experience. Now, to try and combat that, um, 
couple of years ago, BlackBerry um, introduced an Android virtual machine into BlackBerry 10. Uh, it runs an older version of Android. I think it's Android 4, which is a problem, firstly, because obviously some apps won't run on that. Um, and it is a VM. Um, so uh, it is not as directly integrated into the operating system as native BlackBerry apps are. So you don't get uh, Android apps, for instance, communicating with the hub. So you don't get to see your messaging in that. And uh, any interactions with that app, it will look and operate like an Android app. It won't look and operate like a uh, BlackBerry app. To get those apps, um, they cut a deal with Amazon to make the Amazon Android store available on BlackBerry 10. Which is great, except that, again, this is another um, store where you don't always get the full suite of apps. You don't get everything that's available on Google Play. Google Play is where it's at, and unfortunately, Android's, uh, Amazon's Android store is behind that curve again. Um, so you don't get apps that you know are available for Android uh, in, sometimes in the Amazon store, and that is disappointing. It's kind of a double kick in the teeth. Here you are using a, a phone that's a nice phone, but there's no software support for a particular app in their own store, so you go to the Amazon store, and, it, um, and it's, still, it's still not available. Now, there are ways of putting the full Google Play experience onto the BlackBerry 10. There's a couple of guys who've done that. There's a developer who's developed something called Snap that basically allows you to put Android apps, uh, Android basically gets the Google Play store. And then there's um, there's another guy called Cobalt who lives in the, in the BlackBerry forum somewhere who basically has ported the entire Google Play experience to, uh, to the BlackBerry 10. But you know what? I've tried both of those solutions. They have some issues. They're a bit of a hack for a start. They're not for the faint-hearted. They're certainly for the not, not for the non-technical user. The Snap application needs to be sideloaded into uh, BlackBerry. You can't just install it from their store. So you have to figure out a way of getting the um, Android file into your BlackBerry. Uh, and that's something not people will, will necessarily know how to do. Uh, and the, um, the Cobalt solution is even worse. You have to sideload four or five different apps install them in the right order uh, and get them all working and even then sometimes it doesn't work as i found to my cost um, so i've done both those things i've tried to get some apps that weren't available in the amazon store working like for instance a podcast app called pocket casts um, it works and it installs but then after using it for a couple of days it started complaining to me that it, it wasn't properly licensed it said it couldn't check its license with the Google Play Store, which of course it can't because Google Play Store isn't really officially supported on this device. So that was kind of a bummer because it stopped working. Um, and really lack of apps is where in, in 2016 you really start to notice it. Um, and it's you don't think about the apps you use until they're missing. So for instance, uh, I got to the station this morning and I realized that my Starbucks card that I use is on my iPhone. And uh, I don't have a physical one, so that meant that I couldn't claim points or use my Starbucks card balance to buy a coffee this morning at the station. I had to use old school cash. Of course, you have no Apple Pay. Um, I also have no iMessage. So um, my uh, family and friends are texting me, uh, and I'm not able to pick those messages up because I'm, I'm not able to receive them on my BlackBerry. Um, now, I hear you say, what? Why don't you ask people to use WhatsApp? Well, WhatsApp is available in the BlackBerry store, but when you first install it, the first thing it says is, just to let you know, we are de-supporting de this app from the end of 2016, and it will stop working. So thanks, Facebook. You're um, 
obviously seeing the way the wind is blowing with blackberry and withdrawing your support i don't really blame you for that obviously um but that means that whatsapp is not really a viable solution either and here's so this is the problem you know um I, i've talked about this experience with a couple of colleagues and then we've been talking about oh and they said oh you mean you haven't got your rail tickets on on an app on your phone no oh you can't call an uber no <laughs> you know these are the things we kind of live and breathe nowadays and even though blackberry ships a nice suite of software with this phone there's a fairly nice maps application the browser is really good um there's a whole load of different things um that are good on there you know i i managed to get some of my um core apps that i use all the time running by using android versions i use LastPass. i use authy for authenticating uh, some of my uh, two-factor accounts and things like that. I was able to get those running on there. I'm missing things. And, uh, you know, that's a problem in 2016. And it's a shame because, as I say, it's a really nice phone. It impresses most of the people who see it. Um, they think it looks really good. They like the fact that it's a little bit different. Um, some people really like the keyboard and having a physical keyboard on there. I've got to say, it's quite nice. Um, you know, these are nice devices. They sell, still sell for a reasonable amount of money because they were premium phones. They were far too expensive when they first came out. They were up at iPhone prices. And I think when you're coming at um, a market from the back foot, um, pricing yourself at the same price as your major competitor when you have those disadvantages is a bit of an issue. Uh, I paid £150 for mine, so around about $200. Um, I like it enough that I'm going to keep it. Um, I don't want to get rid of it after I finish the ex this experiment. Um, I will keep it as a fallback phone and um, possibly, you know, um, use it on Wi-Fi and leave it by my desk so that if I need to um, tap out a quick mail or something like that, I've got something I can do it on the or I might, might not necessarily have my uh, iPhone to hand. Um, yeah. <laughs> As I say, I think, man, that sounds really weak. What am I keeping it for? I'm keeping it because I like it. As simple as that. Um, so that's the BlackBerry Passport. Um, yeah. Have a look at it if you feel like it. You know, it is a nice device. It really is a nice device. And I feel bad for BlackBerry. I feel bad that um, they weren't more successful because much like... Um, palm did with the pre some of the other companies who've kind of been and fallen away nokia obviously is another big one who had their own phones as well as the windows phones they did you know these were all good devices they had a place in the market and um it's kind of a shame in my view that we're back down now to the the cookie cutter approach of android and then the uh, steady incremental development of of ios but obviously we're lacking innovation um we're not lacking those big changes and we're lacking people trying to do something really quite radically different. And I think that's one thing that BlackBerry was trying to do by sticking with their uh, devices for as long as they did. If you do fancy trying BlackBerry 10, you don't really want to drop the, the sort of money I paid for my passport. Um, they have some older, cheaper devices that have um, physical keyboards on them and still run BlackBerry 10. They have the uh, Q5 and the Q10 which are probably about three years old now. A Q5 you can pick up for very little money. Um, and as I said, it's a pretty good phone, as long as you're not relying on apps. Um, if you, I would say actually these would be great phones for perhaps somebody who's maybe a little bit older 
and is particularly interested in messaging and email and that sort of thing and not really much interested in anybody in anything else uh, and some people like a physical keyboard or on the soft keyboard though blackberry also did the z series which was um, effectively their version their tackle of the iphone glass slate but running their operating system so if that's your bag you could have a look at that as well so that's interesting is anyone out there who still rocks their blackberry and loves it please let me know i'd be very interested to uh, discuss the pros and cons with you and and kind of get your views on on how it fits with your life and you know whether whether blackberry had an opportunity to turn around their fortunes by uh, changing tack maybe and continuing with the hardware um blackberry is now switching to a strategy where they're going to just license their software to other people for android you know what my personal opinion I'm, I'm no business guru but my personal opinion is that that is the beginning of the end really or continuation of the end if you like because um i remember other companies that have tried to do that in the past uh, palm comes to mind they said they were getting out of the hardware business but don't worry they're going to continue to um, license WebOS to anybody who wanted it and nobody wanted it you know um i can see that being an issue for blackberry and i wonder how long they are going to continue um like this um and that's sad it's always sad to lose a big player especially as blackberry were once so huge and so important in the mobile space and i think you know if blackberry hadn't done what they did in the early days with their original uh, communicator products we probably en ed never would have gotten to the iphone because I think their um, adoption in business uh, really promoted the idea of using a mobile device as a pure business communication tool in a way that was actually workable. And um, I think if BlackBerry had never existed, then maybe uh, we wouldn't have iPhone and Android today. So it will be sad when they finally do expire. Um, so there you go. That was the BlackBerry 10 um, Passport which um, I will continue to use for the rest of this week, uh, and then I will probably be grateful to get back to my uh, iPhone 7 and my apps. Though I think I'm going to miss the keyboard and the screen, got to be honest. Okay, I think that will probably do it for this week. I've rambled on for long enough, and it's getting pretty late here now. Uh, I also need to listen to it back and find out whether my... Uh, fingers around the microphone kept the dreaded tick away, and hopefully it wasn't too noisy. Um, I don't know what's going to happen about uh, a show going forward. Uh, as I said, Tim's dealing with, with what he's dealing with at the moment, and that's going to make it scheduling shows difficult for the next week or two. So um, I'm not going to make any promises about when we can record again. I know I can't record myself this weekend because we're away. We're having a family weekend away. Um, but uh, we will speak to you when we speak to you. Um, in the meantime, I hope you continue to enjoy your tech lives and uh, look forward to hearing from you all soon.